sermon numbered 550, Remembering the Reformation, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on October 25, 1970. The text is 2 Chronicles 33:15, And he, Manasseh, took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord. As Mr. Wiley and Mr. Bruder have left this service and have now gone to conduct a service for our fifth and sixth graders, which is being held simultaneously with this service, it being held in another part of our church building complex, it is my privilege to read to you from the Word of God, beginning at the first verse, if you would, of the thirty fourth chapter of the ancient book of Second Chronicles. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty-one years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty-five years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had broken down, and erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord has said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all of the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his own sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he practiced soothsaying, and ogre, and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. And the image of the idol which he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land which I appointed for your fathers, if only. They will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that they did more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Now the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people but they gave no heed. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with feathers of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God received his entreaty and heard his supplication 
and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterwards he built an outer wall to the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, to the entrance by the fish gate, and carried it round Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also took commanders of the army and all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain, on the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord, and offered upon it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. A rather lengthy portion of scripture, but one which is very important, especially to the history of Judah. It tells us about Manasseh. Manasseh, who was the individual who was to reign longer than any other king in the southern kingdom. Manasseh, who also was considered the worst king that that kingdom ever knew. Some people think that the evil that this man possessed and showed was due to the fact that he was appointed king when he was only 12 years old. Now, 12-year-old boys can sometimes do great things, but I don't think there's any 12-year-old who can reign as a monarch. And they say that some of the evils that creeped into his leadership was because of the fact that he was too young. There are other individuals that say his infamy was caused by the fact that he was constantly being badgered and harassed by the oncoming power of the great Assyrian army. And because he was worried about this great force, he did not have the time nor the effort to spend in seeing whether or not what was being done in his nation and in the house of the Lord was proper and correct and according to the will of God. If you read carefully this Chronicles account, you, you get the third impression that really the cause of Manasseh's embarrassment to his nation and the disgrace which he was to his God was for no other fact than that he had forgotten the Reformation which had begun by his father, Hezekiah. You see, Hezekiah was just as good of a king as Manasseh, his son, was her worst. Hezekiah was one of these wise old saints who believed that if a nation like Israel was to be strong, her worship had to be pure. And God could not expect much from the people of Israel if the people of Israel did not try to the best of their abilities to worship God in spirit and in truth. So he made it a determination of his reign to try and rid Judah of all the evil practices that existed within the house of the Lord to get rid of all the trivia and unimportant things in the house of worship, 
to try and rid the world and the religious institution of all the evil that was masquerading under the disguise of holiness. And he went to work, and he caused a ruckus in Judah. He caused the people to be in controversy. But he was successful in his reign, which was much shorter than that of his son, who was his successor, and he was able to clean the house of the Lord from idolatry, from scandal, from corruption, and from necessary, unnecessary, and evil practices. But Manasseh, when he came to the throne, he forgot the Reformation which was started by his father. We've tried to point out maybe why, but we're not really sure. All we know is that everything his father had tried to do, Manasseh undid by forgetting the Reformation of his father. I introduce this sermon with this particular fact of history because today is Reformation Day Sunday. That is, in the Protestant world of Christianity, this is the day when we are commemorating the 453rd anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the chapel doors of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. This is a day which we howl within our Reformed tradition. But it is also a day when I think many Protestants lose sight of some of the principles and the insights in the spirit that existed in the church 453 years ago. I feel that as a nation and as a church, the American Protestants today are losing much of the power that God would have us to be by forgetting those things which inspired, motivated, and empowered the Protestant Reformation. I do not believe in anti-Catholicism, where we are in the tradition where we can stand and throw on the spiritual spitballs at our brothers and sisters within Christ who are of the Roman Catholic tradition. That proves nothing. Only the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ is not what Christ intended her to be. But nevertheless, we have within our tradition some insights which maybe some of our brothers and sisters in Christianity do not have. We believe that these are godly, inspired insights. And we feel that they have been blessed by God in trying to reform his church down through the centuries. Therefore, on this day of Reformation, 1970, may we look at some of those principles, some of those insights, some of those concepts that have been born into our tradition and which we use and are used by God when we remember the Reformation. The first thing that I think came upon the minds of the Reformers was a fact that oftentimes we overlook. The idea, the concept which 
believes that it is very easy for a church to become deformed. You see, it's altogether possible, no matter what people might be telling you from other areas, that the Church of Jesus Christ, as we know it, can become deformed, something less, and oftentimes in direct contradiction with what Christ intended her to become. Oftentimes, whenever we see a particular church, we like to believe that Christ dwells there. That's not necessarily true. Just because you see a, a building or a program or activity, one must never automatically come to the conclusion that Christ is there and living and is alive. Oh, we wish that were true. But oftentimes when we see these particular institutions and religious bodies and, yes, particular buildings, though they may appear to the world as to be instruments of Christ, they are, in reality, nothing more than the enemy of Jesus Christ. Now that's strong talk, and it's a very strong accusation to make, but it is altogether possible for a church to lose its Christ. It happened once in history, and it can happen again. And I'm afraid it's happening in many areas of our land and throughout the world today. Christ promises that he will never leave his church, but that does not necessarily mean that the church does not leave its Christ. We must get rid of this concept that wherever we see a church, we think Christ is there. No. The reverse is true. Wherever Christ is, there is where the church is. You see, it was believed and taught and propagated back in the church of the 16th century that the church and the clergy could do no wrong. They were infallible. And then Martin Luther, a preacher, if you will, within that church, looked at it. And he saw the ecclesiastical machinery. It was so big and so vast that so many people were spending so much time on it that the church had lost its moral insight of Jesus Christ. He looked at some of the practices that were being involved by good people. Practices like indulgence. And all he saw were the rich nobility becoming richer through the payments which the peasants were making to try and get the church to forgive their sin. He took a very strong stand, which is very difficult for any man or woman to take in any generation when he became convicted that the church in his day was something less than what Jesus Christ would have her to be, that it had become deformed and had not become the body which Jesus Christ expected her to be in the world of his day. We must be very careful when we begin to think of ourselves as judges 
But that does not alter the fact that still the church can become deformed. This is an institution of people, built by people under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that people can err. And oftentimes a church can become something less than what God would have her to be. A church can have a growing membership. But if people within her fellowship just come to meet and do not meet God, then she is not a church. I don't care how large and astronomical is the church budget, but if it does not give evidence and witness to the fact that it is in mission for Jesus Christ, call it what you want, but do not call it a church. in our program, and I don't care how much and how busy is the activity, if we are not doing something more in the name of Jesus Christ than other humanitarian organizations are doing for our brothers. We are not the church of Jesus Christ. We are a deformity instead of being the body of the risen Lord and Savior. You see, a concept which we must get before our mind is that it is altogether possible for the church, our church, if you would, can become deformed in the image of Jesus Christ. The second thing that comes from this and is related to the first, that reformation, if it is to come within the church, comes through leaders and people who are biblically informed. Read the biographies of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, these men who are in the role book of the faithful in the Reformation. See what happened to them that caused them to be anxious for the church. They were just not a group of people who were maladjusted and wanted change for the sake of change. These were people who had become converted to Jesus Christ and had become serious students of this very book, the Bible. They knew their Bible. You see, the big problem in the 16th century is that people were not allowed to have Bibles. They were biblically illiterate. The reason being that the church would not allow the Bible to be published in the common vernacular of the nation. And you'll remember one of the first things that Martin Luther did was to translate the Bible into the mother tongue of the German so that every man could sit down and read what God was saying to him. And that is the strength from which came the Reformation. When you have big people who are biblically informed, then you have the power of God's work, word working within Reformation. Remember Martin Luther when he stood at the Diet of Worms in 1521? He was able to stand against those charges, face eviction and excommunication from the church, saying, I feel that it is neither right nor safe for a man to go against the dictates of his conscience and the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. The Reformation began in a book, the Bible. 
The people of the 16th century couldn't understand the Bible. They were biblically illiterate. Strange is it not that today in our American advanced society and throughout all the societies of the world, we still are biblically illiterate. It's not, though, because we do not have the Bible in our mother tongue. It's because we have the Bible, but we don't use them. No much wonder the Church of Jesus Christ is having trouble today when her leaders, her clergy, her laity are not informed more in God's history and the way God works through people. No much wonder we have people dropping from the waysides and storms brewing within the covenant of the believers. I'm sorry, Reformation up to this time has come only by one way, through the minds and the hearts of people who were immersed in the Word of God. And if Reformation is going to take place, Reformation that is real and wonderful and sent from God, it will come, I am convinced, through men and women who are biblically informed. There are many church, many changes that are going on within the church today, both in Roman Catholicism and in Protestantism. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. Some of them are biblically oriented and others are not. And the only way we even stand half a chance in reforming the church from its deformity is by being people who dedicate our time, our talents, and our efforts to help people, you, me, become biblically informed. Now this takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort. This book is a difficult book to study, and anyone who says it is not has never studied it. But if we are to be reformers, and remember the reformation of our heritage, we must become informed biblically. And thirdly, a concept that I think comes out of the Protestant Reformation is that oftentimes with Reformation, you'll find coming its twin cousins with confusion and, yes, revolution. On a day like today, when it's so beautiful and, and when we seem to be happy and filled with joy and are remembering the lives of these men and women who have been so important to our tradition and who are the very bulwark of the Protestant Church. I think we do a great injustice to history. It's so easy to stand up here and romanticize about the lives of these men. And we can far too easily lose sight of the concept that in their day, they were not so much loved. We think of these men as messengers of God dressed in human clothing. Do you know what Martin Luther was called back in his day by the people in his church? Heretic. <laughs> they excommunicated, threw him out. John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, on more than one occasion was literally run out of town 
John Knox, who is the individual who reformed the church in Scotland and, and brought into being our great-granddaddy of the United Presbyterian Church, that of the Church of Scotland. Do you know that the Queen Mary herself charged Knox? Treason. That's our history. The Protestant Reformation did not take place in a nice quiet little world in a nice quiet group of church people. It was bloody. It was filled with controversy. All sorts of accusations were being made by all types of people. Because with Reformation there comes confusion and revolution. Now we quiet, modest, austere United Presbyterians don't like to hear this. I'm a peaceful man. I don't like some of the anguish that is going on within the church and within the world. But folks, this concept which comes out of the Reformation period helps me to try and understand how God works. And I think maybe sometimes we're getting a little bit too excited about some of these individuals who are presenting some of the ideas which are coming to the forefront. You know, some of them just might not be wrong. Some of them might be the Martin Luther of our day or the John Calvin or the John Knox. Did you see in the paper this past week where John T. Scopes died? Remember him? In 1925, he was accused by the state of Tennessee because of his teaching in a biology class. He began to think about Darwin's theory of evolution. The school board said this was wrong. He was accused by the town. And even though the great attorney Clarence Dow defended his case against William Jennings Bryan, he lost. He lost and was considered the heretic within the tradition of the early 20th century. He died this past week. I'm not here to defend Darwin nor the other theory, but only to point out that the state of Tennessee no longer has that law. That creation is taught versus Darwin's theory. Things change. And oftentimes it's not because we have become weak or too modern. But through revolution, God works to purify and purge his church. Now that's a frightening thing and a very strong statement to make. And the only way that I can live with it is when I remember a fourth thing that comes out of the Reformation. And that is while God is reforming his church, you never want to underestimate the power of his Holy Spirit. With his own blood, he brought this institution. And for her life, he died for this institution. God loves the church, and he's not going to leave her, nor is he going to forsake her. But oftentimes, he is changing her, and we don't see it. Oftentimes, he is working in our midst, and we are not conscious of it. Because we are constantly underestimating the power of his Holy Spirit. Just let me show you one brief thing from history. Back in the 16th century, three men at three different places 
at the same time in history were thinking upon the same particular problem. One was a Spanish soldier, the other was a German monk, and the third was a French attorney. The three of them were not a committee. They were not friends. It's doubtful whether or not they even met this side of heaven. They probably knew that each other existed, but for some reason or another, within a period of 25 years, in less than one generation, each one of these men was converted to Christianity and became involved in trying to reform the church of his day. In three different spots of the universe, in differing ways, using different talents, these people became involved in reforming the church of Jesus Christ. Ignatius de Loyola, he was the Spaniard who was the military man. Martin Luther was the German monk. John Calvin was the French attorney. All three of them working within the same period of 25 years to bring around Reformation. An accident? <laughs> the Holy Spirit doesn't have accidents, ladies and gentlemen. The Holy Spirit was working in wondrous ways, its mysteries always to perform, and its church always to reform. God is reforming her church right now. And I cannot help but feel as I stand before you here, now, this very moment, that there might be someone within the sound of this preacher's voice, a hundred miles from here, or maybe in the balcony, or someone down here, upon whom God's Holy Spirit is now working for the one purpose of reforming the church in the 20th century. Do you realize that it's not beyond the realm of possibility that when the Christian Protestants are worshiping in the 24th century, we'll be mentioning the name of one of you as being God's instrument in the 20th century to bring out the reformation of his church.